Hello, friends. This B-side is based on our last message in Numbers, Numbers 26 through 36, entitled, Get Back Up Again. In this episode, we are going to look at a way to endure the wilderness. Why some people seem stuck in the wilderness. I want to introduce you to this concept. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called holiness. Yes, holiness that will help us to survive the wildernesses of our lives. And then we will have a message. Um, I'm pulling one out from the archives. Way back in 2013, I gave this message called The Poison of Perfectionism. And we're going to visit that message based on Psalm 103, because when we fall down, when we fail, when we realize our flaws, when we fall short, we must be compassionate toward ourselves, because God is compassionate toward us. Yes, perfectionism, this unrealistic demand of ourselves, does not come from God, but it comes from us. And as long as it remains, we may never get back up again. And then, of course, we will close with a preview of the book of Deuteronomy. But first, we have a message to summarize in hopefully 60 seconds or less. In this section of Numbers, two and a half tribes settle for land before Israel enters the promised land. They fall short. Why do we often fail to push ourselves into God's promised land? Because of shame. We fail, we are flawed, we fall short, and shame tells us that we are unworthy. It tells us to hide. It pushes us down. But Numbers 26 opens with God taking a new census of the new generation to tell them this. Even despite all of their flaws and failures and falling short, they still count. You and I still count. Six ways we can get back up again. One, find a mentor. Two, worship deeper. Three, be intentional. Four, kill Balaam. Five, relearn your history. Six, define your limits. But don't limit God. We must go further up and further in, not settling for the very first best thing he gives us. So we close in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul tells us that God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Well, that was 15 seconds over, but close enough, because now we have some material to get to. Do you have those people in your life whom every time you talk to, it seems that they're rehashing the exact same struggle every time? That almost like their life doesn't go anywhere? They're just spinning circles around the same circumstances, the same problems, the same complaints. Yeah, I was talking to someone like that the other day. And after realizing like this is just the same narrative over and over, it dawned on me. This is what it looks like when someone is not pressing into the promised land. This is what the terrible, horrible, no good, 
very bad 40-year death march that Israel went through in the wilderness, this is what it looks like in the common everyday life. Life is just a merry-go-round without the merry part. It's cyclical. It repeats. You feel stuck on a NASCAR track, making the same left-hand turns. It's only by following the tabernacle that we can go forward. The tabernacle is what takes us in a more linear direction, a from point A to point B direction. It's the tabernacle that would take Israel into the promised land. The cloud would move, the tabernacle would follow, and the people were to follow that and to pitch their tents and, and build their lives around the tabernacle. And so as I was talking to this person, it dawned on me for the first time, they hold nothing sacred. Everything in their life is the same. Everything is on repeat because there's no structure of holiness. And now bear with me, think about this for a minute. The tabernacle had a structure of holiness. And Israel lived around this idea of the sacred. It's why Leviticus is in the very middle of their, want, their, their journey to the promised land. Recall that the, the tabernacle, in the very center of it, was the holy of holies, which is the holiest thing in heaven and on earth. It's, it's God's presence himself contacting earth there, the holy of holies. No human could go into that. Then there's the holy place, the tent itself, which hosted the Holy of Holies. And that only priests could go into. And, and some of the holy worship articles and instruments were in there. And then around the tabernacle was the outer courts, where anyone who was to worship Yahweh could go in. That was not restricted just to priests. And then, of course, outside of that even, you just have the common camp. Now, as you enter these varying degrees of holiness, there are certain things you cannot do. And there are certain people who are not allowed. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more restricted the access. Holiness starts with God. If we want to build our lives upon holiness, if we want to have something sacred that will lead us, it has to start with God. He is the definition of holy. He is to be the most sacred component in our lives. But after that, each of us needs to find something else to hold holy, something else to be sacred. And the more that we have in our lives that is sacred, I believe, the more fully we will live. Recall what it means to be holy. Holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. So, for example, nothing in the Holy of Holies was for common use. It was specifically God's place, and only one person one day of the year could even go in there. The holy place had a lampstand, 
The lampstand had a specific function. You take that lampstand out of the holy place and put it in the camp of Israel, now it's just a light for everybody. People can touch it. You can move it into this tent, into that tent. It becomes common. What makes something holy is that it has restricted access because it's set apart for a very specific person or function. Now, in our own lives, we must hold something holy. Yes, let that start with God. But now where is God reaching into the rest of your life? What is that thing, that curiosity, that passion, that awe, that wonder that you hold higher, differently, more uniquely, and special, and set apart, and cherished above all else? What is that? That is what you hold sacred. These are the things that give us meaning, that give us joy, that rip us out of the same cycle where all of life is the exact same. All of it is common. By having that thing, that curiosity, that passion, that awe, that wonder that you cherish above all else, that makes life unique itself. It's what pulls us out of ourselves to see that there are things in the world that we must treat with reverence. Now, this is where it gets tricky. If something is to be truly holy and sacred in your life, then it must have boundaries. Because if it's enjoyed or used too much, it becomes common, right? The more common something was, the more it was in the ordinary day-to-day life of Israel. The less it was in their day-to-day life, the more holy it was. So, uh, these things that we put in our lives, um, the more we enjoy them or use them, the less holy they become. Now, for you, that may be ice cream. It may be a TV series. It might even be sex. Now, now think about this. I love ice cream. That's why I limit how much of it I eat. Yes, I know it's not good for me either. But I, there, I, I, it's, to me, it's not something I just commonly have. Like, oh, I feel like having ice cream. No, ice cream has a certain time, a certain place. And to a degree, there's this specialness to it. There's this almost sacredness to it. And that's what makes it special for me. Now, if I ate ice cream all the time, it would be nothing, right? Uh, some of us have a TV series that we really enjoy. I guarantee you will enjoy television more if you watched it less. If you have that special series that you only watched with a certain person or at a special time that you had boundaries for, where it wasn't just, the television wasn't just constantly something in the background of your life, it would have this element where even when I'm watching this, it can, it can make my life feel different. It, it's elevating me in some way. Uh, and sex, this is one of the problems in our culture, is that sex is no longer sacred, right? There's no boundaries, there's nothing that is cherished about it. it. Some of us, some people don't even, um, they have multiple people they will have sex with. You see, the more we hold it sacred, then the more boundaries it will have, and the more significance it will have, and the more meaning it will bring to our lives. People looking for joy in life 
will break down these boundaries and turn something sacred into something common, and then it no longer has significance in their life. So the sex, the gift of God that was meant to fulfill them, is now making them feel more and more empty. It's always the big sins that make the pictures the strongest, right? Now you got to apply this backward again. The television series, ice cream, whatever you wear, eat, say, think, do, everything in life has been placed at a variety of levels of holiness. And I want us to think about what do you hold most sacred? Under God, where where is this level of sacredness, of holiness in life? Do we hold anything in special places? Are there boundaries? Are there varying degrees? Do we have limited usage or specific usage for this or that? Because if we just drag everything into the common, nothing means anything. And here's the challenge, friends. If we believe that God lives everywhere, if we believe that the temple is no longer relevant because Jesus has made his people a temple, we must then wonder, how does that affect the objects and the people and the experiences around us? If you feel stuck in the wilderness, if you feel like life is on loop, find that thing that God has given you to hold sacred. Up next is that 2013 message called The Poison of Perfectionism. What you don't hear in this message is that I had started with a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, that Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings. He also had a short story called Leaf by Niggle. And the story, in short, is about a guy named Niggle who has a magnificent masterpiece in mind. A huge tree with rolling hills, majestic mountains, and slanting sunlight. And he was going to create a mural of this. But Niggle paid attention to the details too much. And so he spent his whole life working on a single leaf and never got past it never got to the other leaves of the tree or the rolling hills or the majestic mountains or the slant in sunlight. Considering his life a failure, when he gets to heaven, um, he there is startled to find upon his entrance is not just the leaf he painted, but the rest of the picture he meant to paint. It is actually part of the landscape that he walks into. There is his leaf and hundreds of other leaves as perfectly detailed as he had hoped to make it, and the tree and the rolling hills and the majestic mountains and the slanting sunlight. Tolkien wrote that short story about himself. He felt like Niggle. He felt like he was striving too hard at the Lord of the Rings, and with the coming of war in England, he was not sure he would ever finish it, and that his life's work would go to waste. He says that he dreamt that story, woke up and wrote it down. So you're going to hear the message start with a reference toward Niggle. Now you know the backstory, and I hope that you are enriched by this. Niggle means to find fault, to criticize, or to spend time on petty details. That's what it means to Niggle, to find fault, to criticize, or to spend time on petty details. 
There's a niggle inside of each and every single one of us. There's that, there's that niggle inside of us that finds fault, that criticizes, that spends too much time on petty little things. Why? We often become niggles because we fear that we are going to die in insignificance. We're afraid that we're not going to amount to much. So something inside of us tells us, do better, be more. And we strive and we start to criticize and we overanalyze and we, we go on this path that says perfectionism. Be a perfectionist to become a somebody. Let's now read Psalm 103 verse 8. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great his love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Catch verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Because God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that a beautiful piece of poetry from the Psalms? It goes on and on and tells us about how compassionate, how understanding, how patient, loving, and forgiving God is toward us. And at the very end of this, it says he is all of these things to us. He's compassionate towards us because he knows what you're made from. He knows what you're made of. Dust. God does not expect dust to be perfect. What this psalm tells me, and it's beautiful, what this psalm tells me is that God does not niggle. He does not overanalyze you and scrutinize and find fault and spend all this time on the petty little things of your life and say, Christian, you just need to get that better man overlooking all these good things that he made about Christian and like these little things. Because I feel like sometimes we feel like God is a niggler because we hear pastors or other Christians, or spiritual leaders, or the church, or whatever, your institution, and they're constantly talking about sin, sin. (laughs) They're like prancing in the fields of sin, and they're like, don't do this. They're always pointing out where we're all failing in sin, and and we get this perception that's like, ooh, the gospel's good news, huh? And, And we hear it talked about in a way that focuses on the bad news. But according to Psalm 103, God is not niggle. He doesn't look that way towards us. As a father is understanding towards the imperfections of his son, as he shows compassion to his son, it says God shows compassion to us. You don't expect a toddler to speak perfectly, to throw a 90 mile an hour fastball, to cook a meal for the whole family, to read Shakespeare fluently, to understand Fyodor Dostoevsky perfectly, or even to say that. (laughs) You don't expect that from a child. And God does not expect this from us. He doesn't expect you to be flawless, to be perfect, 
to begin understanding and embracing your call the second you become a Christian and start influencing the world and saving everybody down the street. And we hear these ideals and we think that we should become like that, but God doesn't say that anywhere. He's very compassionate. He's very understanding. And so here's my question. If God doesn't niggle, then why do we? Why are we finding fault with ourselves? Why are we critiquing and criticizing constantly? Why are we spending so much time over the petty little things in our life? If He can be compassionate to us, how can I not be compassionate to myself? That's a massive truth that doesn't even compare. If Almighty, quote, perfect, I'll explain that a little later, (laughs) Almighty, perfect God can have compassion for imperfect me, should I not have even more compassion for me? Yet I tend to find myself becoming a perfectionist and being harsh on myself because deep down inside I have failed to understand that He is God and I'm not. Don't forget, you're not God. If God can have compassion on you, have a little compassion on yourself. Now, I was reminded very late this afternoon about the Disney movie Snow White. And this is what created the whole idea to me. Uh, So here we go. Uh, You guys remember, and the Disney version, because you know Disney changes all the traditional fairy tales. The Disney version of Snow White goes like this. Blah, 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 blah. Then there's Snow White in her cottage all alone. (laughs) And the queen who's envious that Snow White is more fair than her disguises herself as a wicked little ugly witch. And she is concocted, as we know, because we saw the scene earlier, a poison apple. Now, when she comes to Snow White, she doesn't come up to Snow White and say, here's a poison apple, eat it, you'll die. (laughs) She comes to Snow White and begins to have a friendly discussion. What are you making, blueberry pies? Ooh, don't you know all the young men want apple pies these days? <laughs> and she holds out the red apple, the poison one. Uh, and then, you know, you might remember all the birds come and swarm in on her. And she's like, ha! Ah! And then Snow White says, shame on you birds for picking on an old lady. And she has pity for her and brings the old woman inside her house now. And now... The wicked queen, the witch, the ugly old woman, seizes the moment of weakness in Snow White and realizes that she can play the victim here. Oh, you saved me from those birds! I must reward you! This apple is no ordinary apple. It's a... You remember what she calls it? It's been a long time for us, huh? It was for me too. Uh, She calls it a wishing apple. Snow White's intrigued, a wishing apple. Yeah, you take one bite of this apple, and all your wishes come true. So what are you wishing for, young lady? And Snow White, well, you guys know what she's wishing for. You remember her at the well, right? Prince Charming. And so she takes the apple and she's declaring out loud her wishes. I want this man. I want this beautiful prince. And you can almost hear this sense of like, I'm not worthy of him in her voice. 
But she's yearning for this, to be elevated to this man that she wants. And it would make everything and make her feel so good. And so she voices that. And then, and then the ugly little witch, eat it now, eat it. Hurry up, don't let the wish go cold. <laughs> and Snow White takes it and bites into it. And of course we know that it was not a wishing apple, it was a poison apple. And what was at first a very sweet bite became very bitter as it got into her mouth. And then as the bitterness went down inside of her, Snow White is on the floor. (laughs) The next scene just shows her hand falling into the frame and the apple rolls off with a bite into it. You see, that apple is a lot like what I had been thinking about perfectionism all week. Your perfectionist tendencies are that poison apple. It comes to you, perfectionism does, and it promises, hey, whatever your wishes are, whatever you want to be, whoever you think you're not worthy to be with, blah, 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 blah. Perfectionism is the answer. So be more, do more, be better, do better. Elevate your game. Become better and start criticizing your weaknesses and become a perfectionist. That's how it comes to you. Your dreams will come true. You will finally become somebody. But once we bite into perfectionism, we realize that it's poison. And this is what perfectionist tendencies do to us. They poison us in two ways. Like Snow White, she was literally paralyzed. She was dead. Perfectionism will paralyze you. Perfectionism will criticize you. So this is the poison. It's paralyzing, it's criticizing. Number one, paralyzing. Perfectionism promises, oh, you'll be so much more. But you know what ends up happening? You guys know this. You heard this in the Niggle story too. It paralyzes you with the fear of failure. If I'm aiming for perfect... And I'm assessing my abilities or the things I have in front of me. And I realize I can't get to perfect. What do we do? We don't even start in the first place. You know how many wonderful stories I had in my mind? You know how many awesome papers in school I thought of? Do you know how many I started? (laughs) You guys know, you procrastinate the paper to the very end because you know that pressure will get the paper out of you. Because perfectionist tendencies within me say, don't start the paper too early because I know it'll never be good enough. So I'll just do it when I finally have just enough time left so I just, whatever's there. I, you know, it's not that good because I don't really have time for it anyways. So we make ourselves feel better about our sloppy job because we say, well, you know, I could have done a good one, but I just chose to wait to the last minute. And this fear of failure causes us to never go and do something. Because we say, if I can't put out my best, I want nobody to see it at all. And pause and think about what we're missing in life because of that paralyzing perfectionist tendency that we're afraid of failing. Everybody who does something well has failed hundreds of times behind that well done product you've seen. 
Thomas Edison didn't think of the light bulb. Sit down. Voila, there it is. He was courageous enough to fail and 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 light bulb! We wouldn't have the light bulb if he wasn't willing to fail in order to learn how to succeed. The poison apple of perfectionism will paralyze you severely from doing the things that God has made you to do. Uh, Tim Keller says this, and for me, this frees up the tendency to be perfect. He says this, If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, in other words, there's more than what this life appears, so if God exists, and there's a real reality behind this, and this life is not the only life, then, what this means is every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. What's he saying? If there is more to life than just this life, then the things we do in this life, if, re- if pursued in response to God's calling, then the things done in this life will matter in the next life. They will matter forever. And this is what we learn in the middle story. The things he tried to do, even insignificant, even though he failed and failed and failed, the painting he tried to paint, it mattered in the next world. It became a very part of who he was in the next world. And so don't let perfectionism stop you from making the effort or making the attempt to go for it. Even if you fail, even if it's imperfect, it's affecting who you are and what could happen in the future. God isn't going to judge you at the end of everything and say, well, how come you were such a terrible poet? How come you were so bad at business? I called you to those things. You should have been better. He's not, he's just going to see, did you do it? I I understand, Christian, that you failed a few times, but you responded to my call. And and your your failures here, look at it here now in light of eternity. I I see them as perfect. Philippians 1 6. He who has began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it paraphrase version right what God has begun he will perfect he will complete and there are things in us that we are fearful to begin because we don't know if we can finish it but here's the point God is not calling you to perfect anything he's not calling you to finish it he's saying begin it participate with me in it I will bring it to its proper completion so conclusion is Don't fear failure. Embrace, roll with it, learn from it, and let God do the perfecting in His time. So, perfectionism is paralyzing, but here's the second thing is that it's also criticizing. And here's how it works. If I hold myself to perfectionistic standards, what do I hold other people to? I then become a critical person. I begin to judge people. 
I realize that I fail here, and then I'm quick to make myself feel better about my failures. I'm quick to point out how other people are doing the same failure. But on the reverse side, if I am compassionate with myself, how will I be towards other people? I'm going to be a lot more understanding and compassionate of their weaknesses and failures. You see, this is where it all begins. Psalm 103. It's realizing that God is compassionate towards us so that we can be compassionate towards ourselves, that we can in turn then be compassionate towards others. Self-compassion is what we need, not perfectionism. So let's, find, let's, let's finish with this question. What is perfectionism? I'm sorry, let's read that. What is true perfection? What does it mean to be perfect? We talk about God's perfect, you don't need to be. <laughs> what does that even mean? Because when I think of perfect, this is probably what you think of, I think of two things, at least the way I hear it used. I think of a perfect morality. God is perfect. And our minds go to, it means he does not sin. It means he does all things correctly and properly. There's no evil in him. That's perfect. We are imperfect because we sin and we do bad things. The second way we think of perfect is in terms of ability. God is perfect. That means he wants to do something and he does it. Bam! There's no limitations on him. We are imperfect. I want to do something. Uh, I can't do it quite right. I mess up. I'm imperfect. Right? Is that how you guys think of perfect a lot? Like in those two ways? At least that's how I hear it used all the time. But here's what blew me away in uh, the Wednesday night uh, Bible study we had at the high schoolers at my house. We were in Luke 6. And this is what Jesus says. He's talking about loving your neighbor. And then he concludes it like this. Not loving neighbor. He went further. Loving enemy. He concludes it like this. You shall be merciful because your father in heaven is merciful. Now, because I have read the gospel several times, my mind immediately went to Matthew 5.48. Why? Because that's where Matthew writes about the same thing Jesus said. You shall love your enemies. Turn the cheek, right? Give your cloak. Go the extra mile. And then he concludes that section with this. You shall be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. So do you see what just happened here? Matthew says that Jesus said, be perfect because God is perfect. Luke says, be merciful because God is merciful. And they're clearly talking about the same thing because the paragraph before that is the same. So what the heck is going on? I think that this is what's going on. I think we are realizing between Matthew and Luke what it really means to be God. What it really means to be, quote, perfect. Perfect is not a thing of spotless morality. It's not a thing of unlimited ability. Perfect is the practice of being merciful like God is merciful. Perfect is the idea of becoming what we are made and built to be. We aren't made and built to be perfectionists and hard on ourselves and hard on each other. Because God is saying, I am not that way towards you. 
I'm merciful and compassionate and understanding and I'm working with you and not beating you over the head. So stop doing that to yourself. And practice mercy with yourself. Practice self-compassion so that you can now be that same way with others. You can understand their faults and failures and weaknesses and you can, you can meet them in the way you meet yourself in the way that God meets with you. That's what it means to be perfect. That's what Jesus is calling us to. True perfection. It's not this niggle-like life where we're criticizing and critiquing and, and this insecurity and we're trying to become better and more and prove ourselves. And then, and then point out all the flaws of the people that are not living up to that. That's not perfect. That's horrible. That's poison. That's prison. But man, how perfect this would be, wouldn't it? If we practice self-compassion and then extended that to other compassion. That's what I think Jesus is calling us to when he says be perfect. He's calling us to practice his behavior towards us, towards ourselves and others. Practice it towards yourself and others. And now for our preview of Deuteronomy. This Sunday, I will be doing chapters 1 through 4. After that, we will launch into chapter 5. Now, the idea of how we're attacking, addressing, teaching through Deuteronomy is that it's a collection of sermons, the final words of Moses. And depending on who, which commentary you read and how you divide it, there's three or four messages here. The first four chapters are the first message. And so that is Moses reminding them of where they've been. It's kind of bringing them up to the present context. Chapter 5 launches message number 2. And it starts with the Ten Commandments, and then it has uh, what it's called the Great Shema in uh, Hebrew. Um, it's the you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then it goes into some other aspects of the law, all the way to chapter 26. And then, uh, now... I've, some people divide, say that the end of Sermon 2 is in chapter 26 ends Sermon 2, and chapter 27 begins a new one. Other people say it goes through chapter 28. So, you know, at the end of the day, does it matter? No. But, so we're going to stop it at 26. And message number 3 starts in 27, where Moses challenges the people to be obedient to the law that God has given them. Obey. If you do, really good things are going to happen. If you don't, really bad things are going to happen. And those are detailed in chapter 28. And the curses are a lot longer than the blessings. Not sure why that is. Maybe you will find out in your readings. Chapter 29 starts the fourth and final message. And it goes through chapter 30. And that's where uh, Moses is just reminding them that they have a covenant with God. And chapter 30 tells them, hey, there's going to be a day when you do fall away from God, but have hope because God is going to restore you. So there's that promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Um, chapters 31 to 34 
uh, aren't technically the last part of the last sermon, but we're going to include it together because why not? Uh, just do that short last message of Moses's and then talk about the end here where Moses uh, has a song for Israel and then that's in chapter 32 and then he blesses the tribes in chapter 33 and then he actually dies in chapter 34. Remember back in Numbers 27, God said, all right, up the mountain, you're going to see the promised land, then you'll die. Well, it finally happens in Deuteronomy 34. And this is what I like about Moses. As discouraged as he may be, he himself messed up and couldn't enter the promised land. It'd be so easy to throw the towel in and say, well, that's as much as I can do. I quit. You know, I already messed up. But Moses doesn't. He contributes a significant portion to the rest of the first five books of the Bible. He's making sure that he's leaving the camp of Israel in the best possible condition he can before giving off to Joshua. He cares deeply that they inherit the promised land, so he's getting them ready for it. He's not just saying, I'm not going in. It's not up to me. That's Joshua's job now. No, Moses is there all along. He never quits. There's no moment where he says, I'm retired now. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) He simply serves the people of God until God says, it's time, Moses, you physically cannot serve them anymore. Book of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. Now, the first four chapters. Um, I know, I feel like I've been doing this lately. It's sort of a bummer, but I really have no clue. <laughs> I have um, read through it a few times now, and uh, the whole book, too, um, once. And I'm still trying to land on what is like what's what's the main message here uh it was well, clear there's this recounting of their history up to the point where they're on the threshold of the Jordan River um but what does Moses want them to see in that um there is this thing uh, starting in chapter 4 where he really hammers the importance of them remembering remembering because I think Moses knows how prone we are to forget. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that that really is at the root of all my failures and miseries of life is that I'm forgetful. I don't mean literally like, Oh, I forgot about God today. Like I just, I just woke up and he was somehow not in my consciousness. I don't mean things like that. I mean, um, there's a systemic problem within the human race that we've forgotten where we've come from. We've all come from God. We were made in the image of God, but we grow up not remembering that. And that's what, that's the term we call for lost. You've forgotten whose you are. You've forgotten who you are. And then we have a moment with God. We have an experience. We have a conversion, right? He meets with us and there's this reminder. Oh my goodness. This is what I was meant for. This is who I was made for. Uh, and then from there, it's, it's a, it's a lifetime of remembering that which we have forgotten. That this, this is what it was about all along. So, um, something like that, you know? Remembering's important. And so, perhaps, the way we go into the promised land, one of the important ways of getting in is to remember who you are. Now, remember may not be the best word because for some of us, we may um, need to relearn. You know, we we believe these lies about our insignificance, 
our unworthiness that God doesn't even count us in or that voice of perfectionism, you know, it's just beating us down. Um, but we need to revisit. No, no. See, I'm believing those things because I've forgotten the truth that I am a son. I am a child. I am a daughter of God. That I am chosen. I am redeemed. I have an inheritance. Those promises in Ephesians. That I have been grafted into the very household and family of God. That I am part of the kingdom of priests working for the kingdom of God. The great high king above all kings. Yeah. Well, whatever that's worth, if that's going to be talked about on Sunday or not, we'll see. But for you today, listening now, wherever you are, please spend some time in prayer each day asking God to reaffirm who you are. I think we'll find a lot of life straightened out. We'll find ourselves more fruitful in the promised land. Until next time, may God bless everyone.